0: There are those gale force winds again. (laughs) That was supposed to get fixed this week. (laughs) Oh, well. All right, so this class is called uh, Defending the Faith. This last week, I I met with a a pastor in town who's a friend of mine, and we went to the same seminary. And he's been in ministry now for about 10 to 15 years. And he said to me, he said, Dave, my... um, My best friend from seminary, a guy that that, uh, I talked with all the time, and we we talked about the Word of God, and we wrestled through theology together, and we we laughed together, cried together, prayed together, and this guy went on uh, to be ordained in a particular denomination. But my friend said that this guy recently um, walked away from the Christian faith. Seminary trained, pastor for many years, and now he's not a Christian. And as we were talking, I, I thought to myself, I wonder if he really seriously considered all the arguments we've talked about in here. The arguments for God's existence and the arguments for Christian theism. And I, I don't think that he did. In fact, the, the main issue for him, guess what it was? Guess what it was? No. Nope. Think about our contemporary culture, homosexuality. He, he himself wasn't gay, but he, he thought, how in the world could all these nice homosexual people go to hell? They're such nice people. And my response was, yeah, there's really nice adulterers, and there's really nice drug addicts, and there's really, really nice pedophiles. Being really nice does not mean that you're innocent. But all that to say, I I just thought again. All of us, including pastors, go through seasons where we wonder is all this Christian stuff true? Are there good reasons to believe that it's true? And so far, we have talked about six reasons. Um, And if you can name all six in order, I may even give you two uh, gift cards this morning. Who wants to take a stab? at going through all six of those. The first one is? Okay, do you, wanna, do you wanna try it, Anne? Cosmological argument, teleological argument, moral argument. Yep, supernatural nature of scripture. Beth Ann, cheating. <laughs> Number five resurrection Yeah, just, just personal personal observations, personal experiences that we've all had in our lives. Yeah, and I went through 10 different uh, experiences, observations from last week. So, again, the cosmological argument, teleological, moral um, the supernatural nature of Scripture, the resurrection, and then last week we talked about a variety of personal experiences that I've had that many of you have had that I have a hard time explaining apart from a Christian worldview. So, Ann, you got, you got most of them. I'll, I'll, give, you, I'll give you a gift card. <laughs> well, she only got one of them. I can tear it up and give her like a, a fifth of the gift card. I wonder if that would work. All right. Okay, here you go. Here you go. There you go. All right. So, um, so far, all that we've done is we have talked about positive arguments for Christian theism, but we haven't dealt with yet um, objections. Although last spring we did talk a lot about the nature of Scripture and we talked about um, objections to the truthfulness of Scripture, but we really haven't, haven't dove into what are the most common objections to Christianity. And this week and next week, Lord willing, we're going to deal with the most common objection, and that is the problem of evil. The problem of evil. So with that in mind, let me begin by reading um, a news story from several years ago. At 7.58 a.m. local time, on December 26, 2004, Tectonic plates several miles under the sea off the northwestern tip of the Indonesian archipelago sprang apart with the force of more than 1,000 atomic bombs, triggering 36 earthquakes, displacing trillions of tons of water, and realigning a 600-mile section of the Indian Ocean seabed. The biggest earthquake registered a 9.0 on the Richter scale and the massive upheaval of water generated a tsunami that is a long, high sea wave that began to race across the ocean at 500 miles an hour. Think about that. Imagine a wave coming towards you at 500 miles an hour. Four weeks later, the tsunami's death toll was over 280,000. But the true figure may never be known. The United Nations spokesman said that in terms of the area affected, this was the greatest natural catastrophe in the history of the world. How many of you remember when this happened back in 'o four, I remember very well watching the news footage of this incredibly tragic and deadly event. Now, when this happened... Many people wondered, where was God when that earthquake ripped that ocean floor apart? Where was God when that 500-mile-an-hour wave went screaming across the ocean? And where was God when that massive wave hit shore and took 280,000 lives? Evil abounds in this world. There are natural disasters, rape, murder, child abuse, war, the Titanic, 9-11, genocide, poverty, oppressive totalitarian regimes, racism, AIDS, birth defects, parasites, cancer, on and on the list goes. Some folks are convinced that this issue, the problem of evil, is the number one reason that people should not believe in Christianity. Now, I first encountered this argument not in philosophy classes at Wazoo or in seminary, but I first encountered this argument at the old spaghetti factory. I was waiting tables, and I was trying to evangelize um, a coworker, and he said to me, he said, Dave, how in the world can you believe in God when there's so much evil in the world? And he went into the formal argument, which we'll talk about in a moment. And I, and I kind of stood there by the huge ice machines getting ice for my customers. I kind of stood there speechless. I didn't know what to say. Um, so what would you say if someone got up in your face and said, How in the world can you believe in a good God, a powerful God, a loving God, yet there's so much evil in the world? How would you respond to that person? Well, to help you and I respond appropriately and biblically, we're going to look at three things this morning, and then, Lord willing, next week, we'll look at one more item. So this morning, here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at the nature of the problem of evil. Number two is the problem with the problem of evil. And number three, uh, the Bible and the problem of evil. And then next week, Lord willing, we're going to go into um, the two most common responses to the problem of evil, who knows what they are? Uh, the, the, the two most common um, evangelical responses. There's six responses, by the way, you can, you can make towards this, but there's two that are the most common. I know, I know you've all heard of these. What's the first response that's often given by evangelicals? It's called the blank, blank defense. The free will defense. Okay, what's the other one? Anyone know? The greater, who said that? Terry, very good. Yeah. So there's the free will defense, but I think a much better response is called the greater good defense. So next week, uh, we're gonna analyze both those in great detail. Talk about the pros and cons of each one. We'll get into that a little bit this week, but next week we're gonna really dig into um, those two responses. the, the, uh, The free will defense and the greater good defense. Okay, so... Number one this morning, the nature of the problem of evil. What exactly is the problem of evil? What is it? It's often framed like this. Um, If God is all good, omnibenevolent, and God is all powerful, omnipotent, there should not be evil in the world. That's the assumption. Again, if God is all good and God is all powerful, then surely he would prevent evil from happening in the world. Because there's evil, either, three options, God is not good, God is not powerful, or God does not exist. That's the argument against theism. And at first it seems like it's a pretty powerful argument to level against Christianity. But, I think it's a much, much greater problem for atheism than for theism. Which brings us to the second point. So first is the nature of the problem of evil. Second is the problem with the problem of evil. Now this particular point, um, I, I am going to review a lot of what we talked about last spring when we talked about the moral argument for God's existence. But here's the main problem with the problem of evil. There can be no problem of evil if there is no God. Very simple, why? If there is no God, there is no objective basis, no standard for right, wrong, good, and evil. You can't even use those words apart from a Christian worldview. You have to borrow intellectual capital from theism to even use the words right, wrong, good, just, beauty. If we've all just evolved from the swamp gas, There is no philosophical foundation for any of those words. Atheists are convinced the problem of evil is the Achilles heel of Christianity, not realizing it poses a much greater threat to their own worldview. Now, when Oxford professor C.S. Lewis was investigating Christianity, he was uh, surprised to discover that suffering and pain actually provide a better argument for God's existence than against it. Now, reflecting on Lewis's thoughts, uh, Tim Keller writes this. I've got this one. Yep, can you guys see that? Kind of. Okay. Lewis recognized that modern objections to God are based on a sense of fair play and justice. People, we believe, ought not to suffer be excluded, die of hunger or oppression. But the evolutionary mechanism of natural selection depends on death, destruction, and violence of the strong against the weak. These things are all perfectly natural. In other words, there's nothing wrong with those things if we all evolve from the swamp gas. We have no more value than bugs or grass or weeds On what basis, then, does the atheist judge the natural world to be horribly wrong, unfair, and unjust? The non-believer in God doesn't have a good basis for being outraged at injustice, which, as Lewis points out, was the reason for objecting to God in the first place. If you are sure that this natural world is unjust and filled with evil, you are assuming the reality of some extranatural or supernatural standard by which to make your judgment. Again, very, very simply, if there is no God, if we all evolved from the ooze billions of years ago, there is zero philosophical basis or grounds for objective truth. Okay, what is objective truth versus subjective truth? Someone tell me. What is objective truth? okay, truth that exists outside of me, okay, said another way, uh, objective truth uh, is true all the time for every culture throughout history, which means that objective truth is coming from outside of culture and coming down on culture. If there is no God, where does that come from? (laughs) It doesn't. It can't exist. Was there a question, Dale, or comment? exactly. What can I do to survive? And if that means raping, pillaging, stealing, lying, cheating, why not? Why not? Okay. So I'm going to really drive this point home uh, because I think it's really important. And I've read this quote a few times recently. Um, I think I read this in my sermon last Sunday, maybe. Uh, William Provane, who was a very famous... um, Darwinian professor from Cornell, he taught biology. (laughs) He's not ashamed of this worldview. Like, he uh, he understands the implications of life without God. And here's what he says. Let me summarize my views on what modern evolutionary biology tells us loud and clear. There are no gods, no purposes, no goal-directing forces of any kind. There is no life after death. There's no ultimate foundation for ethics, no meaning to life, and no free will for humans either. By that, no free will, what, what he means is, if all we are are chemicals and meat, we are simply responding involuntarily to stimuli all around us. Therefore, we cannot make real choices. And again, if evolution is true, there is no free will in that sense. And more and more philosophers are arguing that from from an evolutionary paradigm, that all we are are these machines made out of meat, and our our brains are just chemical reactions, and, and we are responding involuntarily to all the stimuli around us. And if that's true, why is it wrong to rape and to torture children? Which is why more and more and more Criminals are not being charged with their crimes because they're victims of their circumstances. They're just responding involuntarily to stimuli. Dr. Rodney Brooks from MIT um, says this, a human being is nothing but a machine or a big bag of skin full of biomolecules interacting by the laws of physics and chemistry. And again, I, I want you to take this to its logical conclusion. If there is no God, and we all evolved from the swamp gas billions of years ago, there is no one or nothing that can tell you and I what to do, period. I was thinking this morning as I was looking over my notes, and I saw a tree in my yard. And I thought, if evolution is true, why is it? Right for me, <laughs> maybe you'll be just dis- disturbed by these thoughts. <laughs> Why is it okay for me to take an ax and chop my tree down, but not okay to take an ax and chop you down? Are, are you concerned? <laughs> <laughs> What's the difference? If there is no God, if all things evolved from a single-celled organism, all things All the trees, grass, human beings, mosquitoes, lions, tigers, and bears, oh my. If we've all evolved from the same stuff, why does it matter? There's no difference. There's no difference. There's no difference whatsoever. Yet atheists have the gall to say, that's right, that's wrong, that's evil. On what basis is that evil? If your worldview is true, why is it wrong to torture babies? They've, they're just this, this, just muscle and chemicals. Yes, Brian. We'll, we'll get there. We'll get there. We'll get there. It's a great question. Um, listen to this this is a, a very disturbing story from the New York Times. Um, in a New York Times magazine article, uh, Pinker, who is an evolutionary psychologist, spoke of a teenager who delivered her baby at her prom and then stuffed it into the garbage. You guys remember the story? Pinker minimized the evil of infanticide by claiming that new mothers in the animal world sometimes kill their offspring if they think their prospects are poor. So, while we do not condone the actions of this young woman, we should not label it murder. In fact, on on Pinker's naturalistic account, her actions could be condoned, given what we know about evolved animals. So again, I'm just making the point over and over and over again. If there is no God, and evolution is true, that is, atheistic neo-Darwinism, which I'll talk about in detail in a couple of weeks, Lord willing. But if that's all true, you have to borrow intellectual capital from the theistic worldview to even use those categories of good and evil and right and wrong. Uh, yes, Isaac. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 Did you guys? Did you guys hear Isaac? So, let's uh, see if I can summarize what you're saying, because it's really helpful. Um, so, Isaac is saying that that oftentimes um, atheistic ethicists uh, we'll talk about a pain threshold as, as the, the measure of right and wrong, right? So, so uh, if, if an action causes pain in an animal or human, it's wrong. But, but again, why should we care? If it's survival of the fittest, why should I care if you feel pain? All I care about is me surviving. So that seems like a very, very arbitrary imago day thing to say, Right? Because we're made in God's image, we should care about pain and other people. But if there is no God, like why, why should I care if Isaac feels pain? I do care, by the way, Isaac. I'm not going to take an ax. Okay. All right, let's listen to what uh, uh, John Blanchard says. He sums this up really well. Um, I think I have this quote up here. It's going to magically appear. Uh, If the British philosopher Bertrand Russell, who, by the way, Bertrand Russell was one of the the titans of uh, 20th century atheism who's now dead. He's not an atheist anymore, uh, but he was an atheist um, and, and a very, very astute atheist. If the British philosopher Bertrand Russell was right to dismiss man as a curious accident in the backwater, why should it matter in the least whether lives are ended slowly or suddenly, peacefully or painfully, One by one are in mass. The whole world wept over the destruction and death brought about by the tsunami in the Indian Ocean. But why not have the same anguish over the fate of beetles or bacteria, rats or reptiles? If human beings are simply the result of countless chemicals and biological accidents, how can they have any personal value? And why should we turn a hair if dictatorial regimes or natural disasters dispose of them? By the millions. Again, do you and I care when thousands of bats die in the caves of, I don't know, some far off country? But if any of you care, if you care, raise your hand. Okay. But you care because you don't like mosquitoes. That's right. We should care as Christians because God made bats. to take care of bugs. But the reality is, Brian aside, okay, (laughs) that theist aside over there, most of us don't care if we hear that thousands or millions of bats or flies die. Well, then why should we care if millions of humans die? What's the difference? Evolution is true. Alvin Plantinga, who's a a world-class philosopher, who's done a lot of really, really good work in philosophy recently, has said this. Could there really be any such thing as horrifying wickedness if there was no God and we just evolved? I don't see how. There can be such a thing only if there is a way that rational creatures are supposed to live, obliged to live. Accordingly, if you think there really is such a thing as horrifying wickedness, then you have a powerful argument for the reality of God. Now, let me respond To the two most common objections to what I'm saying. Okay? Objection one morality does not come from God, it has evolved over time to help our species survive. So, how how would you respond to that? Open that up to the floor. How, How would you respond to that? Again, the argument goes like this yeah, there is no God. We're moral because. Evolutionary biology has given us morality over time as a mechanism to help our species survive. How would you respond to that argument? Okay, who gets to pick what? Yeah, yes. Right. Right, right. And if you lived in Germany in the 30s and you were a Jew, too bad, so sad. You're in the minority. Okay. What else? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, what's the foundation of that morality? It, 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 it's not coming from outside of ourselves. Um, yeah, it's, it's, I don't know where it's coming from. Okay, what else? Troy. Right. Yeah, go ahead, Luke. Yeah. Yeah. Right, 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 yeah. I knew that was going to come up this morning. Did you guys hear what Brian said? Louder, Brian. If you like the Marvel Cinematic Universe, then why should we care if Thanos wipes out half of the biological population in the universe? Yeah. Because, interestingly enough, in the movie, he was doing that not because he was evil, but he was trying to reduce population and overcrowding in the, in the universe. No hunger anymore. He's a very complex character, isn't he? Yeah. Right, yeah, yep. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, and, and, and I want to step back and ask the question. So again, the, the argument goes like this: um, Morality has evolved over time to help the species survive. But why in the world should anyone care if the species survives? W- what's the basis for caring? There is no basis for caring if the species survives. Who cares? And by the way, evolution is not a thing and it a he or a she or a team. Evolution is just pure randomness. Why should pure randomness and chaos and chance care at all if anything survives? It doesn't have a personality. It's not a thing. It's it's no thing. It's just chance acting over time. And again, this assumes that it's good to survive and who cares if the species survives? Um, And we've already dealt with the second objection, and that is morality does not come from God. Rather, it's determined by cultures. And again, if you were were in 1930s Germany and you were a Jew, um, you would have been slaughtered. But in that culture, that was appropriate and acceptable. That was good and right. And, And I guarantee you that if you were to transport an evolutionary biologist from today back into 1930s Germany, he or she would have said, this is objectively wrong. And I would say, on what basis? There is no basis if there is no God. All right, in summary, to even have a conversation about good and evil, you have to borrow intellectual capital from the Christian worldview. That's just the way it is. And, and trust me, uh, it's frustrating talking to um, atheists who affirm this worldview to argue to they're blue in the face that there is such a thing as right and wrong, but there's no basis for it, none, philosophically. Which is why I so appreciate William Provane, who, who I quoted earlier, who really gets this. And there are other evolutionists like him who, who really get this and understand, yeah, there is no basis for anything. All that matters is survival of the fittest. So said another way, the problem of evil is a much greater problem for the atheist than, it, than the Christian. The atheist simply has no way to account for evil. They can't even use the language of good and evil apart from a theistic worldview. Okay, so we've looked so far at two things. The nature of the problem of evil. Number two, the problem with the problem of evil. And number three now is the Bible and the problem of evil. What does the Bible say about evil? It says quite a bit. Uh, and and I, I think the Bible provides the most comprehensive and satisfying explanation of the origin and nature of evil. The Bible doesn't answer all of our questions on this topic. It simply doesn't. But of all the worldviews, I think it does the best job of helping us understand how to think about good and evil in the world we live in. Okay, so I'm going to make several points. So first, uh, the Bible explains the cause of evil. And again, atheism is totally incapable of explaining the cause of evil, the origin of evil. But the Bible's very clear. The Bible says that evil is the result of sin. Your sin, my sin, and Adam's sin, going way back to the garden. Romans, or, I'm sorry, Romans 6.23 says this, for the wages of sin is death there is evil and death and destruction in the world because of sin god hates sin and sin brings brings about all kinds of heartache and pain because you and i sin we deserve to die we deserve justice the real problem for christians is not the problem of evil the real problem for christians is the problem of pleasure Because again, if we're all sinners, which we are, and God is holy and righteous and just, which he is, none of us, I repeat, none of us should be here right now. We should all be dead, struck down by God's justice. Yet, all of us experience tremendous Blessings. How many of you had breakfast this morning? Raise your hand. How many of you had lattes this morning? Raise your hand. Don't be ashamed. How many of you had a peppermint mocha this morning? Raise your hand. Okay. How many of you are wearing clothes right now? That's a blessing. (laughs) (laughs) On so many fronts. (laughs) How many of you slept in warm beds last night? With, with heat in your house, okay? The Bible calls that common grace. None of us deserve any of those things. And God showers common grace on both the righteous and the unrighteous. Even your non-Christian neighbor uh, gets to wear clothes and drive their car to work and experience love love. And the joys of marriage and the joys of parenting, and they get to eat steaks and Papa Murphy's pizza and wild cherry Pepsi's. I like all that is just grace, common grace, not saving grace, but common grace. And none of us deserve that. Why does God give that to us? Because He loves the things that He made, He loves the fact that we're made in His image. And he loves to shower us with goodness. But that should not be if God is holy and we are not. So again, a much greater problem for Christians to wrestle with is why do any of us experience anything good? None of us should. That will hopefully make you thankful for every single gift that you receive. Everything watching the Seahawks today at 125, you can say, Lord, thank you that I get to watch football. I should be in hell right now. Here I am, watching football, on my couch, in a warm house, stomach full of food. That's all just grace. I remember several years ago, I hadn't played tennis in a long time and I walked onto the tennis court at Spokane, uh, the Spokane Club and, and I had that, that incredibly wonderful smell of tennis balls. Hit my nose. And I thought, Lord, thanks for tennis balls. Okay, anyways. <laughs> so I'm gonna get more of like a connection there. But, um, but the reality is, is that all those little things, and there's probably 10,000 a day that we experience, that's all just common grace. God's goodness to you. And that doesn't seem to line up with the fact that God is holy and we are not. So the fact that any of us are alive is sheer mercy and grace. Well, Dave, what about natural disasters? Well, natural disasters are God's curse on a fallen world. But furthermore, many of them serve a much greater good. Um, Like forest fires as, as a small example not the ones around here that cause all the smoke. <laughs> but generally speaking, it's good about every 60 or 70 years for forests to burn down and, and to be replenished with new life. That's good for the, the ecosystem. So I'm not saying that uh, every, every evil action that we do or experience leads directly to disaster. There is no one-to-one correlation. But the fact that there is evil is the result of sin and you and I living in a world that has been uh, infected with sin. And that's God's curse on creation. Um, So so don't think that, that because you've said a bad word, you're gonna get in a car accident today. That's not the way it usually works. I remember many, many years ago hearing a lady say, she was walking across the ice and she slipped, and as she slipped, she said a swear word, and when she hit the ground, she broke her arm, and she was convinced that that swear word was what caused her arm to break. It was God judging her. I doubt it. You just slipped and broke your arm, because we live in a broken, fallen world. So, first is the cause of evil. Evil comes from sin. Second, the Bible talks about the purpose of evil, purpose of evil. The Bible teaches that God somehow uses evil for good. Think about the Apostle Paul. Think about all the horrendous things that he experienced in his life and ministry. He tells us about them many times in 2 Corinthians, where he describes the fact that he was shipwrecked, he was stoned multiple times. I mean, just imagine for a moment People gathered around you with huge rocks in their hands, aiming directly at your head to kill you. He experienced that firsthand numerous times. Uh, he was whipped 39 times, multiple times. Again, just, just stop and imagine. You're sure being ripped off and being, ri- being whipped with a whip that had pieces of glass and rock and bone tied into the whip to rip off more of the flesh from your back. He was beaten with rods. He was shipwrecked. I'm, I'm sure the apostles, Paul's body was just one huge scar. Um, he was left adrift in, in the sea for several days on end. He went hungry. He was constantly tired. Paul experienced significant evil in his life. But what does Paul say in Romans 8:28? It's good. There it is. And we know that for those who love God, all things. What an amazing two words. All things, all things. Not just the good things, all things, including the evil things. All things work together for good somehow for those who are called according to his purposes. Think about the greatest act of evil in the history of the world. What what, what was it? The crucifixion. The murder of Jesus. He was the only innocent person to ever live. Yet he was falsely accused. He was whipped, mocked, spit on, crucified. Yet God was at work. Listen to Acts 2. 22 to 23. And, and, and notice in this, these verses the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. This is Peter preaching. The men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to according to what? What does it say? Whose definite plan? God's. Wait a minute. Is God the author of evil? It just seems like here, Peter's saying, the crucifixion, that was God the Father's definite plan. Okay, but let me keep reading. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So I love how in this verse we see the sovereignty of God. This was God's plan in eternity past, yet on the day of judgment, who's going to be held accountable? These lawless men. God is sovereign over all things, yet he's not the author of evil. And we'll we'll discuss that in minute, meticulous detail next week. Aren't you excited? So here we see this incredible story of um, God planning the murder of Jesus, yet it was carried out by sinful lawless men. And, And what was the good born by this incredible evil? The salvation of billions of people around the world. God used the greatest act of evil for the greatest good. And if God can do that, then surely in your life, God can turn evil for good. And by the way, Christians who have suffered intensely when have had all kinds of evil done to them, they're usually the tenderest, sweetest, most compassionate people. God is always using evil for good. So the Bible describes the source of evil, the purpose of evil. Third, is the relief from evil. The Bible teaches that Jesus is able to help those who have experienced significant evil. Now, by the way, when you're talking to someone about the problem of evil, there's usually two types of people that you're talking to about this issue. So first is the the hardened atheist, the hardened skeptic. And with that person, I would really hammer the nail We can't even have this conversation apart from you borrowing intellectual capital from my worldview. But if I'm talking to someone who's really suffered, who has been raped, or physically abused, I'm not going to go there. Please don't go there with that person. Instead, talk about Jesus and the fact that He suffered and he can sympathize with them. Let me read this brief story. Uh, At the end of time, billions of people were scattered on a great plain before God's throne. Some groups near the front talked heatedly with belligerence, can God judge us? How can He know anything about suffering? A young brunette ripped open a sleeve to reveal a tattooed number from a Nazi concentration camp. We endured terror, beating, torture. In death, she said. In another group, a black man lowered his collar. What about this, he demanded, showing an ugly rope burn, lynched for no crime but being black. In another crowd, there was a pregnant schoolgirl with stolen eyes. Why should I suffer, she murmured. It was not my fault. Each had a complaint against God for the evil and suffering he had permitted in this world. How lucky God was to live in heaven, where all was sweetness and light, where there was no weeping or fear, no hunger, no hatred. What did God know of all that man had been forced to endure in this world? So each of these groups sent forth their leader, chosen because he had suffered the most. A Jew, a black, a person from Hiroshima, a horribly disfigured arthritic. In the center of the plane, they consulted with each other. At last, they were ready to present their case. It was rather clever. Before God could be qualified to be their judge, he must endure what they endured. Their verdict was that God should be sentenced to live on earth as a man. Let him be born a Jew. Let the the legitimacy of his birth be doubted. Give him work so difficult that even his family will think he is out of his mind when he tries to do it. Let him be betrayed by his closest friends. Let him face false charges, be tried by a prejudiced jury, and convicted by a cowardly judge. Let him be tortured. At last, let him see what it means to be terribly alone. Then let him die in agony. As each leader announced their portion of his sentence, a loud murmur of approval went up from the throng of people assembled. When the last had finished pronouncing sentence, there was a long silence. No one uttered a word. No one moved, for suddenly all knew that God had already served his sentence. Jesus knows what it's like to suffer. As a result, he can help those who suffer. First Peter two, twenty one to twenty-four. Peter writes this. Where is it? There it is. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. When the suffering and the evil in your life grows to a fevered pitch, and you think to yourself, how long, O Lord, remember that the maker of all things did not remain in heaven in a community of comfort and love and warmth and pleasure. He left all that, came to earth, and suffered unspeakable torments to bring you to glory. Which means he is able to sympathize with you when you're suffering. Jesus is the ultimate solution to the problem of evil. So the Bible describes the source of evil, the purpose of evil, the relief from evil. Fourth is the mystery of evil. You and I should expect tremendous mystery when it comes to this whole subject of evil. Romans eleven thirty three to 36, says this. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom of, and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Answer, no one. Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. The Apostle Paul is saying we should not expect to understand all of God's ways. God's ways are far above our ways. God spoke billions of galaxies into existence. He knows all things actual and possible. Of course you and I should expect to have unanswered questions in this life. It would be incredibly presumptuous of us to demand that God explain all of his ways to us. There's tremendous mystery. Uh, with this particular topic, Deuteronomy twenty nine twenty nine says this: the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. So, let me go back to the main objection that I talked about earlier. Uh, and formally, um, the problem of evil basically again says. Uh, If God is all-powerful and if God is good, there should not be evil in the universe. There is evil in the universe, therefore God uh, does not exist. Now, again, we're talking about the mystery of this issue. In light of that, isn't it possible, isn't it possible that God has a morally sufficient reason for allowing evil to exist that we are currently unaware of? You can't assume that if evil is pointless to you or to me, it's pointless to God. Tim Keller says this, "Uh, tucked away within the assertion that the world is filled with pointless evil is a hidden premise, namely, that if evil appears pointless to me, then it must be pointless. In light of that, uh, consider the way that Doug Grudhouse um, states the problem of evil. Again, number one, um, God is omnipotent and omniscient. In other words, God's all powerful and God knows all things. Number two, God is omnibenevolent, which means that God is good. But number three, there is objective evil. And, and again, Douglas Grudhouse says this. He says, This argument given above assumes that there is never a sufficient reason for God to allow evil. But this premise is highly debatable within the philosophical context of theism itself. Then he goes on to state the problem like this. Okay, I get number one, God is omnipotent and omniscient. Number two, God is good, omnibenevolent. Number three, there's objective evil. Then number four, for any evil that God allows, God has. A morally sufficient reason for allowing this evil, even if we do not know what this morally sufficient reason is in some cases. Now, recently, my youngest um, had two or three big warts on his left toe. So my loving wife took him to the doctor to get those warts removed. Do you think he enjoyed that experience? I got the report from my wife. It took four professionals to hold him down. While those warts were being removed from his toe, he was screaming bloody murder. He's, he, he is like, not JV, but varsity in the screaming category. He's really good at screaming. I don't know why. But he screamed and he kicked and he writhed and they finally were able to hold him down and burn those three or four warts off. Now, why in the world (laughs) did my loving wife put up with that? Why did she go to the doctor and have that taken care of? Because she knew that that temporary pain that temporary evil of having those warts removed was going to lead to long-term good. But in the moment, do you think Henry understood the long-term good? No. He just knew that his foot hurt really, really bad. Okay? So sometimes, God allows you and I to experience significant heartache and pain because he knows it's going to lead somehow long-term good and we may not always understand that in this life there may be good we never see in this life that good may be reserved for eternity and again if you stop and think what I deserve right now is judgment that's what I should expect but God's been really good to me And yes, I've experienced this and this and this. I don't know how to process this. This makes no sense to me at all. This happened to me when I was this age and it was really painful. It led to all kinds of long-term scars in my life. I don't know how God's gonna use it for good, but I'm trusting him. I'm trusting him. And again, that good may not be revealed until the life to come. And that good may be expressed in someone else's life that you know. And that's the mystery of evil. God is somehow using all these things for good in the lives of those that love him. Greg, Gregory Kokel says this about this topic. It's often hard for us to see how the bad thing God permits in the present could ever bring a greater good in the future. This is because we do not know the future or the infinitely complex set of events that fall like dominoes from our lives into the lives of others. Sometimes decades, maybe even centuries, pass before the balance shifts. This happens often in the story, since only a god like ours can transform something that starts out so evil into something that ends up good. So one more point, then we'll wrap it up here. So again, we're looking at what the Bible says about evil. We talked about the source of evil, the purpose of evil, the relief from evil, the mystery of evil, and then fifth, the end of evil. Someday, because of the person and work of Jesus, all evil will be eliminated from all of creation. Revelation 21 2-5, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, or crying, or pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true." As a result of the birth, and the life, and the death, and the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus, there's a day coming when every single tear cried by the saints will be dried. And you and I will experience nothing but joy, and bliss, and bliss and pleasure for all eternity. And that is the result of Jesus. And I think we often lose sight of eternity when talking about the problem of evil. Yes, there is horrible evil in this life. There's been a couple thousand years of horrible evil on planet Earth. But there'll be trillions of years of joy and bliss and peace and the absence of evil because of Jesus. And as Christians, that's our hope. That's our hope. Isaac Watts famously said that Jesus came to make his blessings flow how far? As far as the curse is found. The curse has affected everything in creation and Jesus Christ will redeem everything someday for his glory and our joy. The devil will not have the last word. Evil will be vanquished someday. That day's coming. So wrapping things up, Back to our main points we talked about the nature of the problem of evil the problem with the problem of evil and third we talked about the bible and the problem of evil and we i made five points there and again next week lord willing i'm going to dive into in much more detail the, the two most common responses to the problem of evil the free will defense and the greater good defense and we'll spend a lot of time next week talking about things like compatibilistic middle knowledge, uh, freedom of the will. uh, uh, We'll talk about power of contrary choice and all kinds of very, very um, intense theological topics to help us think through um, the sovereignty of God and human responsibility and the problem of evil. So with that said, what are your questions? Dale. Amen. Amen. Well said. Yeah, go ahead, Paula. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so a deistic worldview typically believes in objective morality, objective truth, objective right and wrong. So they would share that with the theistic worldview. Um, but a deistic worldview really has no hope or no solution to the problem of evil. Um, so as, as, as Christians, we, we believe that Jesus came to earth, rose from the grave, and, and he has dealt decisively with evil. Um, so the deistic worldview offers no hope, very little hope at all. Um, does, does, that, does that answer your question, Paula? Maybe not. Answer, ask a follow-up question. Yeah. Yeah. Which sounds pretty hopeless to me. <laughs> Cuz humans are doing a pretty lousy job of figuring that out. <laughs> the 20th century was the bloodiest century in the history of the world. Do you guys know that? We we our morality is not evolving all that well. Is it? It's getting worse, not better. Yeah. Right, many of the communists do. Yeah, and how has that worked out? <laughs> okay, communism almost always ends in dictatorships. It's been tried 27 times. 27 times. There, there's been communist exper- 28 communist experiments. It's never worked. Lord help us. That's where we're heading as a nation. Lord have mercy. Yes, Anne. Yeah, that, that's Augustine. Augustine talked about evil as the privation of good. Uh, I, I probably won't get into that too much, um, but I will talk about how God's control of good and evil is asymmetrical as a similar, similar idea, yeah. I will not cover open theism. Actually, I, I will cover open theism, if you remind me, because that, that, that comes out of the Arminian worldview. That's extreme Armenian theology is open theism. I'll talk about next week. Yeah, Isaac. N- nice and loud so they can hear you. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, th- and that's part of the greater good defense. And that, so how many of you have read Tim Keller? A lot of you have. Uh, Tim Keller uh, argues for the greater good defense in both the reason for God and then his book on evil and suffering. And I think that makes the most sense. And again, I'll, I'll get into that in much more detail next week. And I'll argue that, that that theodicy is better than the free will theodicy, in my opinion. And I'll talk about why that's the case. Okay, we gotta wrap it up. So, guys, here's the deal. Last Sunday we had 477 in attendance. Um, it was very crowded. The overflow room was packed. This room was packed. If we're over 470 this morning, we have to go to two services, which is really, really disappointing for a variety of reasons, but that's going to kill Sunday school for a season. So um, I, I, I don't want that. I love Sunday school, um, but the reality is is we don't want people to, to have to come up to GCF and then drive away because there's no space for them. So last week, again, was very crowded, um, and if that happens again, the magic number is 47. If we reach that again, we're going to two services, and we'll put Sunday School on hold until we get into our new building. So I just want to give you a heads up. So I guess pray for no growth, maybe? I, I don't know how. I'll let you pray how you want to pray. Um, <laughs> so the elders talked through all the different options this week, and it just... It pains us, but but we really want to make room for new people. So anyways, that's, that's an FYI. Yeah, three home groups are meeting in the overflow room, but again, last week it was packed. Guys, let me pray. Father, thank you so much for uh, giving us your word. Thank you that you, uh, your word helps us wrestle through these incredibly painful, complex issues. Father, I pray that you would help all of us to trust you and recognize that you are at work. Uh, working all things for our good and your glory. Lord, help us now as we transition to our Sunday service. Bless the singing, bless the preaching, bless the Lord's Supper, bless the fellowship, and we pray all these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.